I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Jeff Radke is someone who has had senior roles in many areas of the insurance and reinsurance spectrum. His career ranges from reinsurance broking at Guy Carpenter to running PX3, one of the last major Bermudian specialist retro writers. He then played a large variety of senior roles in over a decade at Argo Group, the internationally diversified specialty insurance and reinsurance group formed out of Argonauts' takeover of PX Re in 2007. But all those roles had one thing in common. All of them were at the very least one step removed from the end customer. In his latest venture, he's applying all that experience to the world of ultra-specialised, ultra-client-focused MGAs. It's a really interesting proposition, because Jeff knows from his own experience that reinsurers and specialty insurers are keen to access portfolios of stable commercial risk to help balance their own increasingly volatile books. Meanwhile, after the shakeout and instability of the last couple of years, quality MGAs are looking for really solid and committed paper providers. Accelerant does all the things that other MGA incubators are doing, including providing and sourcing growth capital, but it also uses its own paper and sources long-term third-party insurance capital for its MGA members to give a complete service. It's clear that Jeff is incredibly energised by this project, and I think it comes out all the way through this podcast. Listen on for a really interesting and fun encounter with someone who has clearly got the bit between his teeth. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Jeff, thank you so much for finding time out of your busy schedule to talk to The Voice of Insurance. Why don't we set the scene? You've had a really long career in the insurance world, and I've probably been writing about you for the last 20, 25 years, actually. Why don't you give us a brief outline of that and bring us up to date with where you are with Accelerant? Sure, happy to do that. But first of all, let me say thank you for having me on The Voice of the Church. It's nice to be here. You were kind, I suspect, on purpose. It's a little bit longer than 25 years. It's uh, 30-something years now. It's only as long as I can remember. Fair enough, fair enough. So chronological (laughs) order, I guess. Guy Carpenter, a reinsurance broker, did some time in London with C.T. Bowering, just to date myself. And then in 
96, I think, I moved from Guy Carpenter to a company called Cat Limited in Bermuda. And that started a sequence of reinsurance companies, Bermuda domiciled, mostly, but not exclusively cat focused. That went on for a number of years. It culminated with me running a company called PX Re that was a retro specialist. About 85% of the business we did was retrocessional covered. And after Katrina, Rita, and Wilma, we were able to convince AMBest that the business plan had merit. We were not, however, able to convince S&P that it had merit. And S&P announced to us that they wanted to see much more diversified portfolios of business and diversified business plans, which meant that we needed to find a merger partner. And I'm happy to say that we eventually were able to find that in Argonaut to create Argo. And Mark, before you started recording, we made the joke of, I did the outgoing CEO six-month consulting agreement, and somehow it turned into 11 years. I had a number of roles for Argo, I guess most notably would be ran their syndicate, ran their reinsurance business, ran operations for them, and then ultimately finished with trying to come up with a European strategy. Argo, like many others, were disappointed at how they progressed in Europe as a non-European company. Left in 2018, when Chris Lee Smith, my co-founder, and I both left Argo to found Accelerant, and that's where I and we are today. That's the main event. So tell us all about Accelerant. What was the main idea for the business, and what's the business model, and run us through how far you've got so far? Sure. I think I'll start with the business model, if that's okay, and then we can talk about the motivations. My last assignment at Argo was to try and find, as I said, a European strategy that worked. And very quickly, we convinced ourselves that these European markets were incredibly local. So Spain and Sweden have about one letter in common, and that's about it. Yeah, They may all be under the banner of the EU, but it's almost a trick <laughs> to make you think that it's similar. So the question was, how can you have customer-centric strategy across such a wide geography with so many markets? And the conclusion we reached is the most customer-centric organizations we saw in the industry were MGAs. So if you believe, as we do, that customer centricity is A, key, and B, incredibly lacking historically in our industry, you start with the thought process of, we're going to go to market. We're going to access our business through these MGAs, which at least the MGAs we do business with tend to be about 10 inches wide and a mile deep. I mean, they are pretty specialized in their niches, which is where the customer centricity comes from. So once we made that decision, then the question was, well, how do we support these MGAs in a way that works better than historically it has? And the conclusion there is I think twofold. One is technology and data, which the capabilities of the technology and the data management techniques and tools have just come so, so far. We'll, we'll talk about it. It's almost a cliche yeah. now, but we'll talk more about it. But the other piece of it was attitudinal, which is I've managed places where we had in excess of 700 delegated underwriting authority relationships. Wow. <laughs> At that point, you have no relationships, right? So what we decided to do with Accelerant is have a relatively small number of relatively significant relationships 
where we really, really back the MGAs. In fact, we call them members just to remind ourselves of how we should think about them. And what we said from the very beginning, we say it today at Accelerate. Our job is to make those MGA members successful. And if they're successful, everything else will take care of itself. So because I expect your listeners are relatively expert in the insurance industry, I'll get into a little bit of detail. We are a carrier. We have two carriers in Europe, the EU, one in the UK, two in the US for admitted and non-admitted. So we act as the insurer in that MGA value chain. And what we try and do is simplify and streamline that value chain using the technology and the data to make our value chain from the insured and their retail broker all the way to the risk capital provider, whether it be reinsurer or ILS investors. We try to make that whole value chain efficient, transparent, and fair. I would argue that the existing value chain is none of those three things or the opposite of all those three words. And between the technology and the analytical tools that come with it, the attitude towards openness and the attitude towards customer centricity, I'm really gratified by the group of members we've been able to assemble, the team at Accelerant we've been able to assemble. And once you have a great team and you have good members, what follows next are great reinsurance partners. And then the numbers take care of themselves. And so do you take an equity investment in these members? We don't insist on it, but we are always happy to invest in our members. And I think roughly we probably invest in 30% by number so far. And I suspect that number will end up being over 50%. And the reason I suspect it'll end up over 50% is both in terms of cost and ease of accessing the capital. I'm not sure anyone can hold a candle to us. We've already done the due diligence, right? Yeah. Do they tend to be startup sort of MGUs, MGAs, in which case they might be glad to get the investment to have a startup capital? We sort of think about our members. They come in at least two separate flavors generally, and this is a generalization. But the first one would be what we recognize as a traditional MGA, MGU business long-standing quite often, 10-year track record, et cetera. Generally speaking, what they're looking for capital for is either capital to grow and expand their product line or their teams or geography, which we've done quite a bit of. Or alternatively, they're looking to start the liquidity process for a primary owner. Now, we've come up with a structure, we're a little biased, but we think it's pretty nifty, I have to say where we allow the founder to maintain independence of operation while really taking a lot of the risk off the table in terms of what his ultimate exit is going to look like. Because for so many of our members, their MGA business is by far their biggest asset. And they almost feel compelled to sell because it feels too risky to have some large, large percentage of your retirement asset fund be tied up in some private company. So we found a way to bridge that. That seems to work pretty well. And it's always really great when you can help someone transition into another stage of life. Yeah. So that's one type, generally speaking. The other type of member that we're seeing more and more of is, I don't know whether you call it an insure tech startup or a technology first MGA. What we're doing is we're capturing these people quite often when they have an idea. 
and a real burning desire to, as they say, put a dent in the universe. And what we're able to do quite often, sort of three times so far, is we're able to say, if we back you, we've de-risked your first three years by unscientifically, I don't know, 90%, 85%. Because normally these guys have a great distribution package. The problem is pricing and capacity. So if we take care of the pricing and capacity, we've largely guaranteed their success. So as a result, we're happy to invest at dramatically different terms than a VC would insist upon. I'm not sure what the rule is, but I'll bet you VCs sort of expect nine out of 10 of their investments to not go much of anywhere. Well, with us, we very much expect each of these members that we invest in to be a success. Right. and. You've got the balance sheets. So you've got balance sheets in Europe and the US and UK. So it's your intention to retain that risk to, to say this is great business that they're putting on the books, or are you more of a conduit as a journalist? No one's ever liked me saying fronting. The fronting word, the fronting word's a bit of a dirty word, but are you enabling as effectively as a fronter and you're looking to post that risk on to reinsurers and other investors? I think we need a definition, if that's okay. So maybe there's a better way to go at it. Rather than negatively, let's go at it positive. Mm. So I'll describe what Accelerant does, and then I'll compare and contrast that with what I perceive people mean by fronting. And what Accelerant does is Accelerant views itself as absolutely critically responsible for the curating of that portfolio of business that our members write. And the technology that we have, the platform that we have, is a complete game changer. I've never had as much control over underwriters that I employ than I do today over the members that we delegate authority to. I suppose it's a bit of a contrast to writing retro back in the mid-noughties. It's quite a contrast, yes. Yin and yang come to mind. (laughs) We have such granular visibility into their portfolio and the machine learning tools to help you make some sense out of that granularity. Because let's face it, if someone told you lots of details about 480,000 policies, what the heck would you do with it? I don't know the answer. What you need is a matrix of your expected values, and then you compare it to your actual values, and the machine learning algorithms tell the team where to focus their attention. We talk about using the technology offensively and defensively. So we're looking offensively for hidden gems to expand upon. And defensively, we're looking for landmines where we're running into (laughs) trouble and we don't know it yet. For example, UK escape of water claims after the lockdown ended. I don't know what happened to the pipes of the UK, but... uh, I just don't think they got maintained for 18 months or whatever. Perhaps. But at the companies I used to work for, I think it would have been two or three years till an actuary told me, oh, your loss ratio is poor because there was an unusually high amount of escape of water claims. Whereas here, within three, five weeks, we identify it and take some action. So we absolutely feel like that's one of our critical reasons for existing. And therefore, we've got a lot of confidence in the book. So therefore, we retain a meaningful chunk of everything. However, when we started Accelerant, we started with the knowledge that I and many of the others had on the team from our reinsurance experience, where If I had to summarize the biggest change in reinsurance over my career, it's when I started, about half your book was high volatility, either cat or high excess stuff. 
high margins, lots of volatility. And about half your book was pro rata risk excess, sort of the ballast business. You make a little, you lose a little, but it sort of made the business and its ratios behave. Well, as the insurance companies across the world got bigger and bigger and bigger through compounding as well as M&A, yep. all that business is retained, right? I'm not picking on Chubb. They're smart. Chubb would never seed a portfolio of business where the average limit of the portfolio is less than a million euros. They would retain that, of course. So the reinsurers are getting squeezed further and further out into the tail. Yeah. So we felt if we shared on a peri passu basis, so we didn't shove them way out into the tail, but if we'd shared the portfolio on a proportional or fair basis, we thought that would be incredibly valuable to the reinsurance market and to the ILS market. And we're gratified that so far that seems to be proving itself out. We're lucky to enjoy a spectacular reinsurance portfolio panel. And that panel gets bigger and bigger as we grow. So that aspect of the business plan is A, important and is clearly working. So you're giving them the sort of ballast, low volatility, not quite high margin business, but profitable business, steady business that they've been losing out on over the last 20 years. That's right. And probably don't want to delve into all the boring math about why that's so valuable, but your intuition will sort of tell you if you could get a chunk. It's important that the portfolio be a certain scale. And while as a private company, I don't think we want to talk about exactly what our volumes are. I guess what I'd say is we're delighted with the members that we've been able to attract. And we're also delighted with the portfolio of business they're writing. And it's meaningful. And it's meaningful to reinsurance companies. So for those startups, really, if I was to describe it to a friend and they said, you know, what's accelerant? I'd say, well, it's a sort of insure tech incubator, perhaps. Is that the right way of describing it? It's an insure tech incubator. I think it's a better solution for a longstanding MGA that's been in business for 15, 20 years. If you have a team of colleagues and you work at an insurance company or a syndicate and you're a little bit frustrated about the bureaucracy that surrounds your team and you have good relationships with your distribution and you really understand your targeted market, I'd suggest that you give us a call. It takes about six weeks to put you into an MGA that you own together with us and off you go. Certainly, you become the CEO of your business and your success, financial and otherwise, will depend on his or hers execution as opposed to everything else that happens inside the big insurance company. So you're taking away that back end and most of the operational stuff. So in terms of your tech platform, I presume that's another thing you're really big on selling to people to say, look, you're a small MGA, come and join with us because we've got this great tech platform. Is that the sort of thing you can plug into, right? Yeah, offering them to plug in. You can plug in a couple of different ways. If you don't have an agency management system, we can extend that to you. If you do have one and you like it, stay on it. And what we'll do is we'll port the data and so that you have access to the Accelerant platform for analytics and the trading, the distribution. But you can keep your front end if you wish. Okay, so you can pick and choose how you want to do it. Yeah. Interesting question, what you said about data. And I I read in an article actually on your website about data. It's more like a philosophical change in the way that insurers want to look at data. It seems that you're very happy to be transparent, say with that reinsurer, they'd get all the same data that you would get. Yeah. 
the old days, I remember, you know, data was sort of this gold dust and you held on to it and you didn't want to pass it anywhere further down the chain because that was where you perceived the value. Do you think it's slightly different? It's really you really gain the value by giving stuff away in, in some ways. Hasn't it all changed? Don't think about insurance. Think about whatever you want, trousers or cars, or I think it's all changed. And I think what we've realized, and I don't claim to be a visionary, I claim to be probably a late adopter, but it suddenly occurred to me that if we at Accelerant are going to say that, hey, we're customer centric and what we want to happen is that member to be successful and we want that risk capital partner to be successful. Unfortunately, we have to actually mean it which is something new for me in the industry, right? We have to actually mean it. And then you have to ask, well, what's best for an MGA? And well, what's best for an MGA is long-term committed, non-competitive capacity. So we deliver that. And what's best for a reinsurer? Well, completely transparent information where they can access the information whenever they wish. And again, this Perry Pass soon slides. So we deliver that. And the question is, and it's a little scary, because we all grew up in the insurance industry. It's a little scary giving away this gold dust, right? But the question is, will the participants in the platform value the platform enough that yeah. they'll be willing to contribute enough so that we can make a living? I would say with relief <laughs> that yes, and to an accelerating degree, as the network effects take hold and the platform becomes more and more valuable to both sides, both the member MGAs, as well as the risk capital providers, what we're finding is increasing enthusiasm on both sides of the platform. What about actually, you've got the ability to have this incredibly granular data and to be able to analyze it and pick up on trends and things really quickly. But is the problem still about getting that original data in from those retail brokers? We're talking about almost certainly brokered commercial business. Yes. Is that still the real problem though? It's a problem. It's a challenge. I'd encourage you and listeners when they hear about challenges and problems in the data stream to ask how many layers back are you? Because when you find a customer-centric MGA or MGU, suddenly they don't have any trouble getting data from the retail broker. So one of our members will, if you're listening, hello, I apologize for the story that I'm about to say. So Will thinks a lot about poultry farms. I mean, a lot right? So you got to steal yourself. If you're going to sit next to him at lunch or dinner, you're going to learn about poultry farms, right? So I think Will captures something like 200 attributes about each at risk. And he gets it from the retail brokers because it's important to him. And and that's how he underwrites. We think they do a great job in underwriting. The trick that Accelerant does is goes in to Will's system and with complete understanding and complete fidelity, pulls that information out, puts it into a common platform in a very, very safe way. Now, the classic example that everyone throws out is you know, the color of the front door. So let's say Will captured the color of the front door. It seems very, very unlikely that that would be a very important data field, but I guess it's there. It's there for people to find out if it's important. Yep. Unlucky door colors, clearly. We, we know underwriters are very superstitious, so you don't want a yellow door, I don't think. I think that's bad. It seems like, Jeff, that you've gone on this InsureTech journey. 2018 was probably the peak of that. I probably did about five different InsureTech conferences that year. 2017, 
2018 were the years when the industry really woke up to the idea, or more likely it got scared about InsureTech and thought, God, we're not going to get annihilated by Google tomorrow and wake up with we've all been fired because someone's worked out how to do insurance properly using technology without us. But you've been on that journey. Now we're in a maturing journey. We're now getting public companies coming out of the InsureTech space, the Lemonades and then and the Roots, et cetera, and the Hippos. What do you think we've learned from that experience so far? And also using your incumbent industry head to analyze that. What do you think the first learnings have been out of this, what's been a really interesting, flourishing cultural outpouring, one, of investment and two, but also this intellectual capital that's been poured out into the industry? I think in general, people make way too much of the underwriting losses. Those companies that you've identified, right? I think everyone makes a mountain out of a molehill about the underwriting losses. Because if you want to fix the underwriting losses, you just change the rates, right? Or maybe change the coverages and they'll know what to actually change. If they're doing, which I have no reason to doubt, if they're doing what they say they're doing, they'll understand their escape of water problem, if that's what it is, and they can adjust for it, right? Yeah. Put in a sublimit, put in a deductible, change the rates. What I think we can learn from the transition is the technology facing the buyer is everything, makes all the difference in the world. And if you take among the most complex personal lines customers and you compare them to among the most simple personal lines customers, there's a lot of homogeneity there, right? And I think what that means is it's crying out for technology to just completely solve the distribution problem. And I think that's what we're seeing and that's what we will see. And that's why I say, whether they're profitable today or not, does this prove or disprove the validity of the business model? I think, especially in personal and tiny commercial, technology-enabled distribution is the direction that the industry is heading. It just seems like it can't be stopped. As you move up the complexity chain, this is embarrassing, but I'll tell the story. So I had to buy insurance for Accelerate. Right. I have to tell you, it was a really confusing and difficult journey that I had to go on. It was a pain in the neck. It must be difficult because also you're not a very standard type of insurance entity either. Yeah. So maybe it was a little harder because of what we are. But if I were a contractor or, or a builder or a shop owner, I'm not sure it'd be much easier. Right. So what I find is on the odd occasion, I get a chance to talk to our ultimate insurance in sort of vignettes where I'm trying to get the voice of the ultimate customer. They're holding on to their retail broker like a life preserver. This is my expert amongst all you sharks because I don't understand a word you're saying, right? And if that continues, which I think it will, that feels sticky to me. If that continues, then the question becomes, how do you best serve the needs of the retail broker? And I think the way you best serve the needs of a retail broker is with a lot of choice, choice as to product, a great deal of service, and hopefully as efficient a premium price as you can possibly achieve. And the only way to satisfy any of those is by going all in on technology. So the lockdowns in the UK were announced, I think it was March 18th, sticks in my head. I'm not sure if that's right. But what I do know is we had a COVID light policy out with some of our member MGAs in four and a half weeks. 
So we had a policy where they cancel their existing policy and they buy the COVID policy, which recognized that there weren't any really premises exposures. There wasn't completed ops exposure because they weren't doing any work, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the only way you are able to do that is if the whole value chain is completely on a modern tech stack. And you have to have the right mindset to satisfy the customer's needs. They're both necessary. Yeah. You don't just say, sorry, you're stuck in a one-year policy. I don't care. Yeah. Or, (laughs) sorry, I can't afford to have multiple policy forms because it's too expensive for my fulfillment, my operations. So I take it from what you were saying before that you think a lot of this current crop of now public insurtechs will succeed. I think so. Yeah, I think undoubtedly. And they've got the customers, right? They're not just going to get bigger and compound and compound those underwriting losses until they're massive and untenable. The folks that I know that work in those organizations, no matter how senior or, or not senior, they all seem pretty sensible people. And I'm pretty sure they're excellent at math. And I'm pretty sure that they're not going to drive themselves into the ground. I have every confidence they'll adjust. And remember now, they've got the customer. Yeah. And just for fun, outside of insurance, start asking your friends, in your value chain, wherever you work, how much does the relationship with the customer get of the value chain? And I think you're going to start hearing some number between 30 and 40% of the value over and over and over again in all different industries. I think there's something important to keep in mind. Another thing that's been happening in the last few years is development in automatic or algorithmic underwriting. What do you think about that? What if someone came to you and said, I've got this great algo, Jeff, would you back it? I would. I would. I would say, how big is your policy limit? And tell me about (laughs) your insured. And I think that algorithm is likely eventually to be better than people at small risks that have a lot of volume. If they had that idea for satellites or for oil refineries, I think that sounds like a bad idea on the face of it. But I believe in the algorithms largely because I'm not sure we're doing anything different in our heads. This is just a series of logical thoughts that we sometimes codify, sometimes don't. Sadly, biases too, and the frames of reference problems and all those things. So I guess I'm a believer in algorithms, whether they're applied by people or machines. With that, you're going to get more consistency, aren't you? Yeah, there's something really interesting, though, about all this data, is if you think about it and take it to the extreme, ultimately, your risk is going to be in a pool of one. If we knew everything about you and your propensity to have a loss and your propensity to claim, instead of pooling lots of homogeneous exposure units, we're finding out that there are no homogeneous exposure units. There's the voice of insurance, which has its characteristics, and then the voice of plumbing, (laughs) we would know so much about it, it would be completely different. I don't know. Maybe it's a problem for after I'm gone, but we are headed in a direction. I suppose we'll have multiple universes. The whole universe will be this humongous Venn diagram with 9 billion different things in it, and they will intersect. I suppose you'll say, you've got homogeneity with 7.3 billion on this aspect of risk. And you're unique in this one thing. Your face looks the way it does, although you look a bit like somebody else. You've got maybe there's five or 6,000 other people in the world who look a bit like you. But on other things, maybe you'll be able to blend it all. But that is a very good point. Yes, your algorithm is going to have to work out what you do have in common rather than what you don't, I suppose. 
I think that's right. And then the uh, thing that is really sticky in my head is the actuaries listening are going to roll over and get very upset with me. But just in round terms, most portfolio business, other than motor or auto, a portfolio business, how many of your policies are going to have a claim made against it? Let's just use round numbers, 5%. What percent of those claims aren't going to matter? They're so small, they don't matter. 80%. So now you're down to 20% of 5%, 1%. That matters. What would it take to find half of that 1% in advance, right? And avoid them. Don't write them. Because I think if you do the math, it would reduce your loss ratio, not by 30 points, but by 30%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be an extraordinarily strong impact on your performance. And so maybe that's what we should be spending our time on. And I can tell you that normally it's much later at night when we have this discussion. And normally it's over a dinner table. But I think two of our members, at least, are really thinking hard about, never mind the rate, how can I think about, with the help of a machine or not, how can I think about the propensity to have a large claim? To avoid that little half percent kill zone. Yeah, that's right. I think that's going to be very difficult. We'll leave that to them. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. right. It also could be a very foolish thing to spend too much time trying to do as well, but I don't know. Well, I think good luck to them. But obviously, they're right to focus on it. If they can do it, then they're going to win. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about the market itself. I think with hindsight, perhaps around that insure tech boom, there was an MGA boom, which I suppose inversely correlates with the market itself. If the market's soft, then distribution get, gets a soft ride and anybody who's coming saying they can bring some increase your GWP with some new ideas and new distribution is usually quite welcome at that stage. And then of course, if, when losses have come in, it goes the other way. Now we've had that kind of shakeout. One, would you agree that that was what happened in the late teens of this century where there was a soft market for MGAs, a bubble of MGAs? There was a time in 2017 or 2016, 2018, I was reporting on an MGA every two days, you know, a new one. Right. So there definitely was a a boom. And maybe like any boom, the worst of that boom were pretty bad. That's almost certainly the case. I think there's a longer term trend at play here. Insurance is fairly unusual, at least in my view, in how static that value chain has been over the past hundred years. It's sort of extraordinary how little it's changed. And if we could avoid the legacy technology and the technical debt, I don't know how, but if we could avoid that, I think the industry would have changed dramatically. And I think it would have started to look much more like the mortgage industry, where you use technology to make handoffs between organizations relatively affordable. And what that drives is you can be really, really specialized. So there's the person that calls you incessantly when you're trying to eat dinner, actually in the States, that's a US problem. There's the person who calls you incessantly while you're trying to eat dinner, asking you if you want to refinance your house. So that's one job. Then there's the people that actually receive your application and process it and make a decision based on some rules. Then there's a wholesaler that holds those loans for a couple of weeks. Then there's a securitization agent, and then there's investors that are taking various tranches. I butchered it, but I guess my point is it's incredibly split up where each participant does their tiny little thing, and that's all they do, what they're good at, 
Whereas if you think about the insurance, typical value chain is right. Insurers do almost all of it. And then there's a little treaty reinsurance bit tagged on that at the end. Yep. I think it's unlikely, and I'm not picking on any insurance company, but I think it's unlikely that any company is really good at each step. Fulfillment, distribution management, risk selection, pricing, those are all different things. And it's difficult to be good at all those different things. I think that overall trend is what's driving the increase in market share for MGAs in the US, in the UK, in Europe, probably other places too, but that's where we operate today. Australia is probably increasing. So I think there's a secular increase and then there's a market oscillation around a secular increase. So where are the best prospects at the moment? Obviously your US, EU and UK, where are you seeing the best markets? Obviously we've had a hardening market for the last 18 months and things seem to be coming off a little bit now, but it seems to be coming off to a pretty good base. Is that right? Yes, it is coming off a good base and in the smaller to medium-sized commercial business where we tend to focus or our members tend to focus, we don't expect much of a fall-off. We didn't get the run-up that the big guys got, but we don't expect much of a fall-off. I think for Accelerant, I hope it's not unsatisfying from your perspective, but for Accelerant, because we just started in the U.S., the opportunities in the U.S. are truly enormous. We've got tons of room to run and sort of the sky's the limit because of the number of quality potential members that are out there. The UK is a little different. We've been at it for longer there. It's a smaller market. Are there avenues for growth? Absolutely. And then Europe, I worry a little bit about Europe in terms of their economic activity. We don't see the activity weighted premiums. We don't see them ticking up in Europe the way we see them ticking up in the UK. Things seem pretty slow still. And if that's the case, the opportunities in Europe will be slower. There'll still be some. There'll be opportunities for territorial expansions and investment opportunities. But I would have to say US, UK, Europe in terms of accelerance opportunities. And what sort of classes are you most excited about? So my answer is frustrating to the people that ask the question. We are collectors of management teams and it turns out that you would not believe the wild and wonderful niches that exist out there. And if we find a management team that thinks about partnership and long-term stability the way we do, and we're really excited about backing them, we do all sorts of classes of business that I never thought we would do. Motor in Greece, you know, sports associations in Spain, cold storage warehouses in Norway, really quite edgy pubs in the UK. There's a whole host, and I don't mean edgy, like cool clothes. I don't don't mean that. When we find teams that we get excited about backing, we learn from them about where they've made their opportunities. Now, having said that, Mark, we do much, much better on commercial business than personal business. We do much better on business that doesn't require gigantic limits, excess of 10 million pounds, euros, dollars. We have capacity above that. We just don't do as well on those big limits. And in terms of the cultural or personality fit, we do really well with really aggressive MGX because we expect a lot of ourselves. I'd love to have a member that expects a lot of themselves because the combination is pretty exciting. And when you take out 
the need to renegotiate their capacity every year, especially in Europe and increasingly in the US. We try to do all the products that an MGA sells. And we have a long-term relationship commitment to the MGA. So if you think about it, there are no renewals anymore. So the two most senior guys in the organization, instead of wasting their time doing the renewal of their eight binders in London for five months out of the year, they're actually outselling. And whoa, do they grow profitably. You give them a commitment, don't you? Is it a five-year commitment? Five-year commitment. We roll it as long as everyone remembers. We should have five years to go on everyone. What I haven't done is, is check in and ask you what sort of scale and size you've got to so far, if we just, you know, using that crude measure of GWP and sort of how many members you've got and where you're expecting to be sort of in a year's time and maybe five years time. Sure. We've got just above 50 members today, which we're really excited about because, again, we have relatively small number of relatively large relationships. So what does that look like in our existing territories as you roll forward to some point in the distant future? 200, maybe? So 50 maybe turns into 200. And in terms of the premium volume, as I said, as a private company, we don't disclose the premium volume. But what I will say is we're quickly on our way to being a multi-billion dollar premium organization. Not there yet, but we'll get there. Part of it is how big the addressable market is. Another part of it is the strength of that customer-centric MGA, MGU model. And the third thing is the strength of that accelerant value chain. I mentioned network effects, but I would say the vast majority of our growth now is coming from inbound inquiries from MGAs that are feeling like maybe it's a competitive disadvantage to not be an accelerant member. And that's always great to hear. Do you think that five-year commitment's a really big deal, particularly as I'm sure there's been some MGAs perfectly profitable, being great, who've been burned, what had been, they thought were long-term relationships, ended up not being as long-term because of the hard market. They suddenly had a change of decision. So, sorry, guys, we're not renewing your paper. Yeah. I said that we've got over 50 members. And I think over 50 members have said to me that they were in that boat. Perfectly profitable, or maybe one bad year out of five. And of course, in their mind, mistreated. Don't know the entire story, but certainly treated with very, very little care for their business. So they've realized how brittle their relationships with their other insurance companies have been. So the five-year commitment, they feel like it's incredibly powerful. And and funny enough, most of its power might come from a statement of how we think about it. We're admittedly and by design a one-trick pony. We support really good MGUs, MGAs. That's all we do. So we can't change our mind next year if the market gets hard. Similarly, it's not going to be one of those things where someone new owns us and we change our mind or we change the chief underwriting officer and go in a different direction. None of those things are likely to happen because we're so purpose-built to fix one part of the industry. Yeah, We just are going to grow that part of the industry. What about your own plans for the business? Obviously, you said you want your MGAs and MGUs to be as ambitious as you are. You're ambitious. Do you have some sort of exit plan in your mind, you know, buying a yacht or something and setting out or, or is it grow it forever type of business? I really enjoy fishing. One of the things I learned is fishing is really only satisfying when you're playing hooky from something you're supposed to be doing. Um, <laughs> so retiring and buying the boat and fishing probably isn't in the cards for me. 
Actually, Chris Lee Smith and I were talking this weekend where we both said, I'm pretty sure we're not going to be able to remember much of our 50s. We're both really, really engaged, really excited, having a great, great time. Our capital sponsor is Altamont Capital Partners. Put a plug in for them. I've worked with a number of different private equity firms and boy, in terms of outcomes as well as culture, you couldn't get a better bunch of people to work with. One of the interesting things about Altamont is they have a 17-year fund life. So what that means is they, at least, are certainly not sort of tapping their toes and fingers about a liquidity event. I'm not sure how well the accelerant concept works inside an existing strategic company. I worry a little bit about like simply business. Can the host accept it sort of thing? So I guess what I would say is we've been very fortunate to have put together, as I said, a group of members that we're really proud of. And we're going to run this thing and have it grow and grow as long as we can grow profitably. And I always find those other things, the back end, seem to take care of themselves if you're doing a good job on the front end. Yep. So we're trying to build the best business we can be in 2026. And whatever happens, happens. And I suppose if a business like Amwins can get to the size it has done without ever having to go public and over in the UK, you know, a broker like Howden, uh, you know, a group like Hyperion can do that without needing to go public. I presume you can do so too. You, if Altamont ever wanted to go, you could swap them in with somebody else, right? Yeah. Or maybe not even swap, just grow, right? Just grow privately or publicly. And every management team, I think, understands the trade-offs in terms of flexibility versus access to capital or cost of capital. And as I said, if you take care of your customers and you take care of your risk capital providers, you'll make the right decision for them and for Accelerant in terms of ownership as they come. So we certainly wouldn't rule out any particular direction. Well, Jeff, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. It's great to see you so full of energy and with a big smile on your face. It really comes across. And so I hope it's more fun than writing retro. A lot more contracts, but more fun. Yeah, yeah, substantially more fun. 480,000 policies. That's a lot more than retro contracts <laughs> that we put out. Thank you again for having me on. And we are having a great time. The whole team is really excited about achieving what we're setting out to achieve and helping our members be successful. So thank you. No, I wish you every success. And I hope at some point in the future, you'll come and check in and give us an update. So thank you so much, Jeff. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, Don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>